Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, this is part of a series of podcasts and video documentaries on the New Zealand wars, which also include episodes on the Northern War and the First Taranaki War. You can find them wherever you found this podcast or just search for New Zealand Wars on the RNZ website. I mihi ana te kia koutou. Big thank you to New Zealand On Air. Kia ora, I'm mihi Rangi Forbes. And I'm William Ray. This is the second in a three-part series, New Zealand Wars, Stories of Tainui, a podcast about the battle over Waikato in the 1860s. It's described as Te Pakanganui Mō Ngutirini, the Great War for New Zealand. But before we go on, let's do a quick recap. Last episode, we spoke about the rising tensions between Pākehā and Māori in the lead-up to the war. 30 or 40 miles from downtown Auckland, you've got these incredibly valuable lands that many settlers are coveting but can't get access to. The foundation of the Kingitanga. The idea was for the king to be able to interface directly with the queen because they felt that that's where the, the treaty relationship resided, on a mana-to-mana type of level. And the man who would order the invasion, Governor George Grey. Governor Grey opens up his gates to his farm and allows 1,400 cows to come through into Waikato to invade Waikato. This is very much asymmetrical warfare. Um, On paper, it should have been no competition. This episode, the war on Waikato begins. By late 1861, Governor George Grey was determined to launch his invasion of Waikato. But his bosses back in London? Not so keen. They already had too many conflicts in other parts of the empire. Yeah, so Britain already had wars in India, China, Afghanistan and South Africa to deal with. Um, Not to mention, they'd just lost 2,500 troops in the Crimean War a few years earlier. Like, we sort of think of Britain as this all-powerful empire... But they were actually stretched pretty thin, and the last thing they wanted was another big war all the way over in New Zealand. Plus, back in Britain, ideas were changing. Cries for the rights and protection of indigenous people were growing louder. So Grey comes up with a plan to get his war without getting blamed for starting it. 
Instead of telling the colonial officials back in London that he was planning an invasion, Gray said the Waikato tribes were planning to attack him. I mean, check this out. This is a letter that Gray sent back to his bosses in 1860, shortly after starting his second term as governor. There is great reason to apprehend that a general rising of the native population may shortly take place for the purpose of making simultaneous attacks upon the several centres of European population with a view to the total expulsion of the white race from this island. This is total and complete rubbish. New Zealand war historian Vincent O'Malley says letters like these were part of a deliberate misinformation campaign. 19th century fake news, I reckon. Governor Gray attempted to justify the unjustifiable, really, through assembling a dodgy dossier of of evidence that supposedly incriminated Tainui, but in fact did no such thing. I mean, for example, Grewi Maniapoto, the great nutty Maniapoto Rangatera, was supposedly intent on attacking the settlement of Auckland and massacring its residents, and this this was one of the justifications cited for invading the Waikato as a preemptive move. In fact, he was returning from a tangi in Taupo when the invasion began and rushed back north to defend his community from this invasion that was unfolding. So when you, you know, you scrutinise these, these claims by Grey, they, they fall away completely. As we said in the previous episode, Grey's real motivation was the settlers' hunger for land. They wanted more land. And he was fearful that the Kingitanga represented a threat to his authority and to that of Britain. And he also believed that the so-called civilization and assimilation would be good for Māori. Yeah, but Gray's misinformation, his you know, 19th century fake news, it all worked perfectly. Fearing for the safety of its citizens, the British Empire called on thousands of troops from England, Ireland, Wales, India and Burma. They all landed in Auckland, supposedly to defend against a Māori invasion. On July 9th, 1863, Gray sent a letter to Māori living immediately south of Auckland, demanding they give up their weapons and swear an oath of allegiance to the Crown. Which is a bit rich, because remember, these are the same Māori who'd shifted closer to Auckland to protect the settlers from attacks during the Northern War of 1845. And many of them um, assumed that if they signed the Oath of Allegiance, they would be required to fight for the Crown against their own kin. And that's something that they couldn't bring themselves to do. So very, very few people signed that Oath of Allegiance. Mostly they pack up whatever belongings they can carry with them and they trek south to beyond the Waikato River to join their kin to wait for the inevitable invasion. So those communities at Mangare, at Ihumata, uh, Pukaki and elsewhere are basically driven from their lands at gunpoint um, and they leave behind their cattle, their homes, their flour mills, their waka, you know, all of that stuff. And, and a lot of it is looted by settlers in Auckland who round up cattle and take them into Auckland and auction them off and so on. And look at the legacy of that eviction at Ihumatau. You know, the status of that land is still under dispute 160 years later. By this point in the 1860s, All Māori could see that war was inevitable, but the final line hadn't quite been crossed yet. Brad Totorewa is a Ngāti Naho historian. I spoke to him at his marae, which was the home to the second king, King Tāwhiao. Governor Gray was warned 
you stay on that side of the Mangatawhiri River and I'll remain on this side. Should you breach that line, you would have declared war. War was finally declared on July 11, 1863, with this letter from Governor Gray, which repeated a lot of his misinformation about a Māori plot to attack Auckland. Those who wage war against Her Majesty or remain in arms threatening the lives of her peaceable subjects must take the consequences of their acts and they must understand that they will forfeit the right to the possession of their lands guaranteed to them by the Treaty of Waitangi. And there was one last bit of trickery from Governor Gray. Waikato leaders didn't receive this letter until after Gray's troops had crossed the Mangatawhiri stream into Waikato, which eliminated any chance of some kind of, you know, last-minute peace deal. When they crossed the Rarangiaukati, that's what they call it, we have a tikanga called Pikehawini, and Pikehawini is a broken truce, so he did it deliberately, broke that line, and declared war. So when he crossed the Mangatawhiri, he well and truly put his whittle down. Yeah, kind of like Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. When he forded the Mangatafri, the die was cast. The leader of the British forces was Lieutenant General Duncan Cameron. Looking at the men and weaponry under his command over the course of this campaign, General Cameron must have been feeling pretty confident. In total, there were about 18,000 troops on the, on the Crown side involved in the invasion of Waikato, uh, mostly consisting of British Imperial regiments, but also colonial troops and a few Māori allies. So you've got a professional standing army belonging to the world's great superpower, which Britain was in the 1860s, unquestionably, the world's leading superpower, up against a civilian population that doesn't have a standing army, it doesn't have a supply line, so Kingitanga fighters not only have to defend themselves, but they also have to feed themselves. The British have a supply train, they, they have dedicated people to supply them with food and, and everything else that they require. The British also have the latest weaponry, infield rifles and others, and heavy artillery, which is what the Kingitanga lacks as well. So this is very much asymmetrical warfare. Um, on paper, it should have been no competition. War historian James Balich says the invasion was among the best-planned campaigns ever launched by the British Army up until this point. They'd built the Great South Road in the months leading up to it, and now more than 10,000 troops marched south using the road and the water. It was a game-changer for Māori. So these armour-plated steamers, they were like sort of... Um modified paddle steamers, you know. Modified so, warships, I reckon, yeah, yeah, with massive firepower. And I was told a story by Vincent O'Malley when we were out there uh, on, on on this documentary. He said that it, they, they had the ability, if a boat came up beside them, even if it was a waka or, or another boat, to spray boiling hot water straight out of the engine onto oh. the enemies. So it's sort of, sort of like, you know, pouring boiling hot water down from the side of a castle wall. Yeah. And on the other side, Kingitanga only had about 4,000 fighters at this point, so they're outnumbered more than two to one. But the Kingitanga had two things going for them. 
First, some of their leaders, including Rewi Maniapoto and Wurimu Tanihana, were veterans of the musket wars. Waikato had also learned the lesson of the Northern War and the First Taranaki War. In both of those conflicts, Māori neutralised British artillery using underground bunkers and trenches. And second, they had deep knowledge of the land. They knew all the best places for ambushes and bottlenecks. Here's Waikato Tainui historian Rahui Papa. It was supposed to be in a bottleneck sort of strategy because it was easier for them to draw them in and then uh, attack them from all sides. The Kingitanga's first mission was to slow down the British steamroller. They had to buy more time to set up defences further south. So instead of making a stand on the bank of the Mangatafiri, they launched raids against the British supply lines. So the first engagements take place five days later at Kohiroa, um, not far from there, and, and a second uh, engagement on the same day at a place called Martin's Farm in the Ramarama district where a party of British troops are marching up the Great South Road are ambushed. And, and that kind of sets the tone for the following few months where the British make very, very slow progress south and their supply lines and troops marching down the Great South Road are, are subject to, to frequent attacks from the bush. The British countered these tactics using special units like the Forest Rangers. They were an elite group of experienced bushmen who were at home in rough terrain. Still, the Kingitanga raids delayed the British advance for months and that bought Māori time to set up their first real line of defence, Rangiriri. Cameron had made reconnaissance missions to inspect it from the river and was unimpressed by what he saw, really. So uh, part of the brilliance of the design was that it looked underwhelming from a distance, and the British didn't really realise that the, the skill and the intricacy that had gone into the design of that par. Rangiriri wasn't your typical par. It was designed by Te Aho Te Rangifaripu of Ngāti Mahuta. And just like many of the warriors at Rangiriri, Te Wharipu had witnessed the Battle of Rua Pekapeka and seen how the underground bunkers and trenches could neutralise British artillery. Yeah, if you want to understand more about that, go back and check out the first documentary in this series, which is all about the battle for Rua Pekapeka. Um, we'll put links on our website and in the description for this show. Rahui Papa says Te Pū took the design of his pai Rangiriri one step on from Rua Pekapeka. Instead of one central fortification, he created a long network of trenches. This forced the British into that bottleneck, the river on one side, the lake on the other. They'd be trapped, with Māori able to fire down from the hill above. So it started from... Um you know, the Waikato, and then it went all the way into Kopuera, uh, and then into Lake Waikare. It encompassed almost the whole of the township of where Rangiriri stands now, or on the crest of the hill, anyway. This is my favourite part, because Rauhi says Te Wharipu took inspiration from nature when designing Rangiriri, particularly from the tuna, the long-finned eel. 
it was more of a flowy uh, type trench system because that led into the contours of the land. It wasn't that it was straight lines and right angles. It was more f- fluid and flowy, uh, just like how a tuna uh, reacts once you pull them out of the water. Vincent O'Malley says Rangiriri wouldn't have looked like anything special to the British, like there were no big, thick stone walls or artillery emplacements like General Cameron would have faced in wars against European powers. But these Māori defences stopped his troops dead in their tracks. So the trenches at Rangiriri are four metres deep. When the British attempt to scale those on the 20th of November 1863, they find that their ladders aren't long enough they easy prey for Māori at the top of the parapets just to fire down on them as they attempt to make their way up. The British make repeated attempts to storm that and they suffer heavy casualties. General Cameron, of course, had some tricks of his own. He sailed the steamers up the Waikato River and shelled the pa from its flanks. And then the cannons firing from the river, as well as the troops coming on the land, had never been encountered in the Waikato before. Even with all these advantages in firepower, the British took heavy losses. By the end of the day, there were 35 dead and 95 wounded. I've visited that cemetery where they're buried. It's just across from the Rangiriri pub, and you can see the graves of the British soldiers. But estimating Māori casualties is much more difficult. They're in a mass unmarked grave. But the very next day, the British came back. And this time, they seized Rangiriri without losing a single man. Here's how the early 20th century historian James Cowan described what happened in his landmark book on the New Zealand wars. Shortly after daybreak, the Māoris ceased firing and hoisted a white flag in token of surrender. One of the staff interpreters was sent forward, and after some discussion, the principal chiefs, headed by Teoriori of the Ngāti Koroki, agreed to submit unconditionally. But Waikato Māori have a very different understanding of what happened at Rangiriri. Yeah, it's interesting because there are places in the story of the Waikato War, and we've talked about this a little bit in the previous episode, where you have a bit of a clash between written history and oral traditions. And Rangiriri is a a really good example of this. Yeah, so we've just heard one version of that story of Rangiriri by James Cowan. Brad Totorewa had a very different account from a kuia. This kuia, Pareteputu, In her narrative, she talks about a red flag and a white flag. And the red flag was raised in the morning at 8 o'clock each morning. And that was an indicator that no war would take place. And that at 12 o'clock, the white flag would be raised. And that gave both sides an hour to get food, to get water, to reshuffle themselves and get themselves organised. And then at 1 o'clock, the red flag was raised again. In times of devastation, our our people know how to operate on values. And we believe that they witnessed a white flag on one of the boats and thought that they would in turn raise a white flag to enter into the negotiations on how they might advance from that point onwards. 
The people of Waikato believe that when their ancestors raised a white flag over Rangiriri, it wasn't a surrender, it was a signal of a temporary truce. And Rahui Papa has another story about the white flag, right? Yeah, the details are a bit different, but he agrees the flag wasn't raised in surrender. The night before uh, the end of the battle, there was a big uh, downpour uh, and the gunpowder got wet. And so uh, my tupuna tiori, takirei te rau, and uh, all of them decided, uh, actually, what are they going to do because their gunpowder was wet? And the idea was to put up the flag, and then when the when the uh, colonial troops come flooding into the pa, they would say, homai te pouta, homai te pouta. They wanted them to give them powder so that they could continue to fight. Oh, no, 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 we're just experiencing a little little bit of a problem, but once we get over that, we can get back to fighting. (laughs) So um, it wasn't as if it was a surrender. It was the white flag in particular was uh, supposed to be a pause. And actually, some Pākehā accounts also suggest the white flag wasn't raised in surrender. Archdeacon Robert Maunzel heard one story of Rangiriri firsthand from a British officer shortly after the battle. The Maoris then hoisted the white flag. Lieutenant Pennyfeather at once scrambled into their redoubt and with his men mingled amongst them, shaking hands, and the general came up about ten minutes afterwards, complimented them on their bravery and demanded their arms. To this they demurred, but the chiefs felt that to resist now was out of the question and decided upon delivering up the arms as required, having first said that the reason of hoisting the white flag was that they might ask what terms they might expect. So what really did happen at Rangiriri? Well, you know, you've got the colonial sources suggesting it's either a deliberate surrender or some kind of misunderstanding. But a lot of Māori historians disagree. They think Cameron realised he couldn't take the power by force, so he took it by trickery instead. But the story of Rangiriri doesn't end there. What happened next was much more tragic, more deadly. There were women and children in the PAR helping to reload guns and deliver supplies. According to Māori oral history, when the defenders of Rangiriri realised the PAR was being captured, they yelled at them to run. children were ordered to leave uh, and they were ordered to leave through the trenches and into Lake Kopuera and across into Waikare uh, and escape around uh, and back into the Waikato. Uh, but the, the colonial troops at that time had reached the crest of the hill overlooking the lake and started shooting them in the water. They were, uh, had children on their backs, uh, some of our, some of the young mothers, uh, in trying to escape across the uh, Lake Kopuera uh, and into Waikare and were being shot in the water. You know, there's been a number of occasions throughout the generations where people have gone down there in the bones of small children uh, were still... Uh, Prolific. Waikato Tainui historian Mamai Takere is a former curator at Waikato Museum and a stalwart of the Kingitanga. The generational trauma she experiences from these accounts 
is intense. She also told me Lake Kōpuera was renamed, so we would never forget the events of that day. For generations, our people have been saying, oh, Kopuera, Kopuera, that's the name of the lake. And I said to myself, no, 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 no. When you break it into syllables, Kopuera, those who were shot. The image begins to fall in front of you, those men, women, children. After flying the truce flag, they began to run because they were being shot at. Kopu. Those who were shot. And the image of these people running across the road, running across the land, and falling into the into the roto, dying, injured, wounded. Bones of children are still in those roto. Men, women are still there. After the battle, British officers claimed they hadn't expected to find women and children in the pa. But Rahui Papa points out that was a totally normal part of Māori warfare. Really, in the Pākehā way of doing it, there were no women and children in their camp. But for Māori, it was the protection of their domains. And, and that's not just a male thing, that's a female thing, that's a tamariki thing, that's a kaumatua thing. It's all parts of the community that look after the domain of the community. For a brief moment after Rangiriri, it looked like the war might be over. A hundred or so warriors were captured and marched up to Auckland, and their chief wanted to negotiate a peace deal. So did our old friend Wirimu Tamihana. You'll remember him from episode one as the kingmaker, a devout Christian and pacifist. After the battle, he wrote a letter to Governor Gray, which said, Eho, engari no ana ke te ke te Friend, it is your side alone which is still in arms. Kingitanga leaders um, plead with the Crown to come and make peace, and Cameron tells them that he can't make peace, only Gray can do that, and he has to come south and talk to the leaders. Um, and Gray sends word and says that he will he will do so only provided um, the Kingitanga abandons Naruawahia, which is kind of the unofficial capital, they take down the king's flag from there and allow the Union Jack to fly, and so those are, you know, those are quite strong demands to make, really. Uh, but they complied with in full. In early December, Cameron and his troops marched into Narawahia, but Grey never comes to make peace. It doesn't happen, and I think there are probably a couple of reasons for that. Uh, I think for Grey, probably he assessed that the Kingitanga, whilst it had been damage had not been destroyed by this time. It's, it, it was still a powerful movement, and he hadn't gone to war to teach the Kintanga a lesson. He went to, to war to eliminate it as any kind of rival um, centre of authority to the Crown, and he hadn't achieved that by that time. The other factor is that colonial ministers, of course, have their eyes on the very rich land south of Naruahia, so there, there are these various factors at play in the extension of that war. None of them... Um, 
related to the King Tanga's desire to fight on. Throughout the war, they're begging the Crown to, to, to come and talk peace with them. But while Grey and the colonial government might have been keen to keep the war going, General Duncan Cameron was way less enthusiastic. He'd suffered much heavier losses at Rangiriri than he'd expected. And after this battle, he got a chance to take a proper look at the power up close. Yeah, it must have been a shock. Cameron had never seen these kind of fortifications, you know, the deep trenches and bunkers. He must have realised that this war was going to be much more costly, more intense than he'd expected. There was also unease on both sides about the deaths of women and children at Rangiriri. Tom Roar is a Ngāti Apukura historian, and I spoke to him in St Paul's Church. It's the only building still standing in Rangiaufia, which was built back in those days. The general was surprised and somewhat dismayed that children and women were in the firing line. And so after Rangiriri, with some talk uh, involving Wiremutamehana and others, they agreed that non-combatants would be safe. Our understanding is that Rangiaofia was set aside as a place for non-combatants to be safe. And so um, old men, women, children, uh, disabled, were safe here. Well, that was the expectation. This is unsettling to some in the church, but Tom Raw says Kingitanga negotiated this deal with the Anglican Bishop of New Zealand, George Selwyn. And as well as being the Bishop of all of New Zealand, he was the chaplain for the British Army. Yeah, but he was also well known by Māori and to Māori. He'd spent a lot of time preaching in Waikato communities before the war. So after Rangiriri, the Kingitanga are preparing for the next stage of this war. They send their non-combatants, the women, children and the elderly, to Rangiaufia, while their fighters prepare to defend a new pa. The name of this pa was Pāterangi. Tom Roa says it was the linchpin of the Kingitanga's war plan all along. One of the strategies was to have an engagement in one place, have people engage there, and then a second place prepare so that before the first place is overtaken, that group would retire and then come to a third place. So the first place was Rangiriri, the second place was Ngarua Wahia, Pukeirangiahua, and the third place was Pātirangi. So there was a deliberate attempt to bring the fight to Pātirangi. And uh, at Rangiriri, Rewi and others weren't there. They were preparing Pāterangi. When he reached Pāterangi, General Cameron would have been horrified. Yeah. I mean, taking Rangiriri had been bad enough. Now he had to face something way worse. Here's Waikato Tainui historian Rahui Papa. Because that was the big pa. That was the big pa. It was pretty uh, sound and impregnable. Uh, and it was far enough away from the river so that the gunboats didn't have an impact. As soon as Cameron got there and he saw 
the structures again high trenches and parapets and things like that and they would have to do so much more mahi uh, to be able to do this even General Cameron said we're not even going to try to do this so General Cameron decides not to attack Pāthirangi head on. Yeah, I mean, why would you? It's two kilometres of trenches and palisades. It's the largest Māori fortifications ever built in New Zealand. A full-on attack made absolutely no sense. Plus, they would have been growing tired by now and their numbers would have been dropping off and this was a massive line of defence. The decision of what to do instead would change the relationship between Pākehā and the Kingitanga forever. And it would leave a wound on the people of Waikato, which still festers today. Vincent O'Malley describes what happened. I spoke to him at the old St John's Church in Tewamatu. It was built in 1854, just nine years before the war started. And on the wall behind Vincent hangs a portrait of Bishop Selwyn himself. So late on the evening of the 20th of March, 1864, Cameron orders his troops to march in single file silently around the Patarangi defences. So they, they sneak around it in the middle of the night with the aid of some Māori guides. By early the following morning, they reach Te Aumutu, St John's Church here, and there are very few people at Te Aumutu. Cameron issues orders to immediately push on to Rangiafia, a few kilometres up the road. So some historians, like James Balich, think Rangiafia had always been a primary target of the Crown forces. He writes about it in his 1986 book, The New Zealand Wars, which was a pretty groundbreaking bit of history writing at the time. He says Rangiafia was the economic hub for Waikato, the largest Māori settlement in all of Aotearoa, critical to supplying the Kingitanga war effort. I mean, back in the 1850s, it had been described like this in the Daily Southern Cross newspaper by a Pākehā visitor. About a thousand acres, soon greatly to be added to under cultivation. A very numerous population of natives engaged in industry and agriculture. In a few years, it will be the granary of Auckland. Yellow cornfields bound the horizon. Orchards cluster round the houses. The mill, the flail, the plough, the spade are seldom idle cultivating and rendering fruitful the wild wastes of their district. So General Cameron believed even just threatening Rangiaufia would force Māori warriors to abandon Pāterangi to defend the town, which would then allow his troops to capture those fortifications uncontested. But of course, Rangiaufia was important to the defenders at Pāterangi for another reason. It was the place that sent their women, children, elderly and disabled. And now all those people were in the path of more than a thousand British and colonial troops. The Crown forces arrive before dawn on the Sunday the 21st of February. And there's panic and terror amongst the people there who, who sort of run for their lives. There's an attack on a group of Māori sheltered in a whare. There are some British troops who are shot, and that appears to anger 
their comrades in arms and eventually the decision is made to deliberately set alight that whare. Several people burned to death inside, including two children. So now we're getting to a really tricky point in this story. Because um, the question of how this whare was burned is contested by historians. Some believe it was deliberate, like Vincent O'Malley. Others think it was accidental. More contradictory stories and sources. Yeah, absolutely. Like, for example, there's one colonial soldier who says the fire happened by accident while both sides were shooting at each other. We put the muzzles of our carbines close to the ropor walls and fired through the thatch. The Maoris inside were doing the same, and naturally the inflammable walls would soon catch fire from the flash and the burning wadding. But there's another colonial soldier who writes about this attack, one of the forest rangers called William Race, and he says the fires were lit deliberately. The proposal was to burn them out. Rapo roofs in hot weather did not take long to set on fire, and soon one after the other were in a blaze. You know, one of the things about the attack on Rangiafia was that because this wasn't a fighting par, that there were mostly women and children and old men there, there was kind of every incentive in the official reports to downplay what took place. And I think, you know, we can't rely on the written record necessarily to remember everything that took place. There are places where our sources agree, though. Māori oral traditions and written records both say that at least some of the women and elderly Māori in the town were armed, probably with hunting rifles, and fired in defence. And pretty much everyone agrees that a cavalryman called Sergeant Mikhail was the first person to die as gunfire was exchanged. Um, Some colonial sources say officers tried to restrain the troops, but that when the sergeant was killed, they sort of, you know, saw red and just started shooting at everyone. Yeah, but Māori historians I spoke to were sceptical about this. They think this was a plan all along. Kill everyone, burn everything. And that's just one of a lot of debates about Rangiafia. Um, Some historians question whether General Cameron was aware that the village had been designated a sanctuary for women, children, elderly people. I mean, maybe it's possible Selwyn never told him that the protection deal was made or there was some kind of misunderstanding. There's also a bit of an argument about whether a church was burned in this attack or not. Yeah, but let's not get stuck in the weeds. There are some basic facts about Rangiaufia which pretty much everyone agrees on, like colonial troops attacked a peaceful village, Mm. homes were burned, at least 12 Māori died, possibly many more. Five or six colonial soldiers also died. Among the Māori dead were... Women, children and elderly people burned in that whare, a whare that could well have been a whare karakia, just a place of prayer. Even the notorious Prussian mercenary Gustavus von Tempsky said he witnessed the killing of non-combatants at Rangialfia, including an old man who tried to escape the burning whare. Spare him! Spare him! is shouted by all the officers and most of my men. But some ruffians, and some men blind by rage at the loss of comrades, perhaps, fired at the Māori. The expression on that Māori's face, his attitude on receiving the first bullet, 
is now as vivid before my mind's eye as when my heart first sickened over that sight. When the first shot struck him, he smiled, a sort of sad and disappointed smile. Then, bowing his head and staggering already, he wrapped his blanket over his face and, receiving his death bullets without a groan, dropped quietly to the ground. The news of Rangiaufia spread like wildfire around Aotearoa after it had happened. Wiremu Tamihana was among those most deeply affected. When he wrote about Rangiaufia years later, he said this. No te teinga ki te kōru i Rangiaufia. Ka tahi au ka mōheo he tino pakanga nui tēnei. No ni When it came to the time of the murder at Rangiaufia, then I knew for the first time that this was a great war for New Zealand. And remember, Tamihana was a devout Christian, and he believed he'd made a deal with Bishop Selwyn, who's, you know, a guy he respected, and that they'd all sort of agreed that Rangiaufia would be kept safe. Everyone I spoke to for this series told me that Tamihana's faith was deeply shaken by what happened at Rangiaufia, especially when he learned Bishop Selwyn had actually been present. I spoke to Kafia Murahi at Riwi Maniapoto's Marae, Mangatotoa. It's just down the road from Waikiria Prison and across the road from the old Tokonui Psychiatric Hospital. Not only were men of faith there, it was a Sunday and the people were, in, were at Karakia. I think Wiremu Tamihana would have been absolutely devastated to know that that's what happened to his people who are people of faith. Did it change things for, you know, those who believed in, in, in the faith and God for the people of Maniapoto who were involved in those churches? Did it change things? I think there would have certainly been some deep, deep ref- reflections on what does this mean? We, you know, so much trust was given to the clergy and to have them involved, even though it's from the sideline, observing, certainly not stopping what was happening. I think it certainly would have caused our people a lot of angst, anxiety, and would have caused them to rethink the, you know, the foundations of, the, of their faith. After the war in Waikato ended, there was deep mistrust of European missionaries among the Kingites, that means Māori who supported the Kingitanga. So alongside the political, military, economic repercussions of the Rangiaufia attack, there were significant religious effects. New faiths sprung up, which blended aspects of Christianity with older Māori traditions. Like the Paimaridi religion, which is still practised by the Kingitanga today, it was developed just a year after the war by the prophet Te Uahaumene, One of the early Paimarere converts was Kingi Tafio. And actually, this is where he got that name. When the war began, he was named Matutaira, Methuselah, from the Old Testament. But in 1861, he abandoned his Christian name and adopted the more traditional Tafio. 
Yeah, and a lot of Māori changed their names during and immediately after the war. Tom Law gave the example of that young girl, Wikitoria, who became Mamai. Yeah, and there's lots of others, um, lots of famous other people, in fact, like Tifiti Orongamai, Tohu Kākahi, Titokowaru, um, they did the same thing, and of course they later became famous as leaders at Parihaka. Same with place names. Uh, we mentioned Lake Kopuera earlier, the place where people were shot. Changing names uh, was part of how Māori remember, and still today remember, events. What did take place at Rangiafia became a source of enormous mamai um, over the years when it was remembered. And, and Wurame Tamihana was, was angered by it. And, um, you know, missionaries talked about, you know, 10 or 20 years later they encounter Māori who, when they talked about Rangiafia, became hugely angry about it because it was seen the people who were killed at Rangiafia weren't considered the victims of war. They were considered the victims of murder, kohuru. Matua Tom says that when Waikato Māori talk about Rangiafia, they describe it as te pāhuatanga. I, I only hear this word pāhuatanga in two places. One is Parihaka and the other is here. The pāhuatanga I translate as an atrocity. It's much, much more than just being a war, a fight, a battle. It's a battle, number one, that should never have taken place. Number two, it's, it's immoral. It's unethical. It's not worthy of people who choose to call themselves Christian. It's unworthy of a crown that promised certain things in this thing called the Treaty of Waitangi. This is a pahuatanga, it's an atrocity. So the point that Tom is making here is that this battle is remembered really differently from all of the other battles in the Waikato War. So it's not remembered the same as Rangiriri or Orako or any of the other smaller battles that happened. Yeah, it was different and it was more violent. And if you consider the women and children who were shot in the back as they were fleeing at Rangiriri, I mean, they don't consider that a pahuatanga, even though murders happened there. So what happened at Rangiaufia had to be another level. Rangiaufia marked a turning point in the wider war for Waikato. The fact General Cameron's forces had bypassed Patsirangi meant Kingitanga had to abandon their carefully prepared defences and retreat. Rewi Manipoto started the trek to Mangatautare to meet with Wirimu Tamihana so they could discuss a new defence strategy. Maybe if this meeting had happened, they could have dragged the fighting out long enough that the Crown would have been forced to accept the Kingitanga's offers for peace. But that's not what happened. No. In our final episode, we'll tell the story of how the war for Waikato ended.
tēnā koutou e whakarongo mai ana. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the biggest thing you can do to help more people find the show. Also, let a friend know about this show or post a link to it on social media. That really helps too. You can find tons of other awesome podcasts on the RNZ website, including lots more podcasts about New Zealand history. If you want a broader story of New Zealand history, um, check out the Aotearoa History Show. It goes all the way through the history of this land from geological origins right up to the modern day. And you might recognise the voice. New Zealand Wars, the stories of Tainu is a co-production by RNZ, Aotearoa Media Collective and Great Southern Television. It's presented and produced by me, Mihingarangi Forbes. And by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin and our sound engineer is William Saunders. Our voice actors were Max Toll, Simon Dickinson, Tim Watkin, Justin Gregory, James Kane and Jim Moriarty. We also had help from RNZ's Shannon Honui-Thompson. And from Annabelle Lee Mather, Mahanga Pihama and Cameron Bennett from Great Southern Television. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.